0: Good morning, Uh, glad to be here. Uh, As a just coincidence, I was the last person to preach at our our, uh, corporate gatherings on March 15th before we went online. And uh, strangely enough, I'm back, so uh, what a coincidence. And uh, a lot has happened since mid-March, March March 15th in our world uh, in these past two months, 12 weeks, whatever it's been. And uh, certainly a lot has happened in the early first century church as well as we went from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 9. So, I'm grateful to be back with you this morning and to see your smiling eyes, at least. Uh, I told my wife last night that uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. My face is so expressive that how are people going to be able to tell when when I'm making a joke? Well, you got it. All right. So, please go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We're going to start, though, at the end of our passage. We're going to be in verses 1 through 31. I'm going to start at the end, and at the end, verse 31, we find find this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, friends, by any measure, by any standard, it's been a, a really difficult, a sad 10 days, two weeks in America, but be heartened that the truth of the gospel brings peace wherever it is heard. And that the church in the first century had peace within and was growing even in the midst of turmoil and oppression and anger and inequality. We, we serve a great God who has given us a great message of reconciliation and hope that brings peace to the downtrodden, to the hopeless, to the angry, to the oppressed. We'll re- revisit that verse here in just a moment uh, as, we, as we conclude in a few minutes. But be encouraged as well this morning by uh, this story in Acts chapter 9. It's, it's really one of the most amazing and unlikely stories in, in the entire Bible. Many will be familiar with it. It's a greater twist than I see dead people. It's uh, caused for more celebrations than victories in past wars, more surprising than Trump winning in 2016. And... Uh, certainly will be cause for more celebration than the eventual vaccine that we'll find for COVID-19. It's the story of Saul being saved. Perhaps you remember him from the first verse in chapter eight. He was uh, a bad dude. He was evil, cause for dread for the Christians and a persecutor of the early church. And this story of Saul's salvation in chapter nine is amazing, but he's really not the main character here. Already Luke and Acts has jumped from Peter to Stephen and then to Philip. And that's because the main character is not any one person, the main character is God. And today we'll see that Saul's conversion is a dramatic display of the power of the risen Jesus as the message of the gospel continues to be proclaimed. So we're gonna divide these 31 verses up by the people who take center stage in these. The first nine is Saul Then we move on to Ananias, back to Saul, and then we finish the last six verses with Barnabas. But of course, don't be fooled. The real main character here continues to be God, working in the lives of his people so that the gospel continues to be proclaimed to the nations. The church expands and grows because the gospel is faithfully proclaimed. So one quick note before we read, Uh, many of you in the room and some online will, will be aware of this, many perhaps uh, might not be, but we're talking about Saul. Many of you have heard of Paul, the apostle and the writer of much of the New Testament. Uh, Paul and Saul are one and the same person. Paul is Saul, Saul is Paul, but I'm going to try to be faithful and stay to calling him Saul as he's called in in this chapter, chapter 9. So Paul is Saul, Saul is Paul, same person. All right, beginning in verse 1, we read, but Saul So no doubt many many of you have heard this story before, and, and perhaps it doesn't really hit you because you're so familiar with it. But I would ask you to stop and consider this with fresh eyes today. We throw words around pretty cheaply today. We say everything is the greatest this or the greatest that. We've heard this word unprecedented used quite often, talking about the pandemic, even though it was just 100 years ago that we had a very similar thing. So it's really not all that unprecedented. But we live in a time where everything is Unprecedented. But if we stop and realize what just happened and what we read, then this is astounding. This is breathtaking. That God would pursue Saul. And as we'll see in just a few moments, that Saul would respond in faith to God. This is unprecedented. This would be unbelievable, except that it actually happened. And as we'll see later in the story, people that knew Saul couldn't believe that it happened. They couldn't believe that he had been converted to follow Christ. And that's because Saul was evil. Remember in Acts 8, when Stephen was stoned, and those who were about to stone Stephen to kill him, they laid their coats, uh, so they get a, a full swing in, they took their coats off, they laid them at the feet of Saul. And that wasn't just because Saul happened to be there. It wasn't because he was the coat check guy. That was a sign of a symbol of his authority, that he was in charge. So Saul was in in complete agreement. He was complicit with the act of killing Stephen. But he was too high up and too important to get his hands dirty in committing the act. Saul's one mission was to keep the gospel from spreading. And he was willing to do anything for that mission. Look back at verse 1 again. Saul wasn't just breathing murderous threats. It says that he was breathing threats and murder. And I think there's a difference there, isn't there? He's not just making idle threats of murder. Saul talks the talk and he walks the walk. He's making promises of ruin and murder that he's he's already committed and that he intends to continue to commit. He hates Christians. And he hates Jesus. And he has the power and authority to continue to imprison, torture, and kill. So think of Saul as the Hitler of his day. Hitler wanted to exterminate Jewish people. And he did. He did anything necessary to achieve his goal. Saul had that same murderous intent against Christians. And he would have continued to do so. He had the means and he had the will. So with with documents in hand from the high priest, he is filled with hope, filled with hope that he would be able to continue ravaging the church. After his conversion to Christ, uh, Paul, Saul, wrote the book of Ephesians, and in it he said in Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Saul's talking about himself. Saul was a rebel to God, spiritually dead, and the only thing that could turn him from the path that he was on is the very thing that he was seeking to destroy. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So perhaps that's your story. And of course, you're not imprisoning or killing Christians, but you're a rebel nonetheless. You, you want things your way. You feel that you're in charge. And if that's you, I would encourage you that you're on that same path of destruction that Saul was headed down at odds with God and an enemy of God but look at verses 3 through 5 again to see what happened to Saul and what can happen for you and if you're a believer in Christ what did happen for you Saul's headed to Damascus and then there's a light that he later describes in Acts 26 as being brighter than the sun And he falls to the ground he's confronted by a voice questioning him and it's it's more than a question it's an accusation and it's an accusation that had to have thrown all of his life's mission, all of his purpose, into question. And that accusation is, why are you persecuting me? And then he understands in verse 5 that he's, he's speaking to the risen Lord Jesus. So can you imagine what Saul must have been feeling at that moment? The leader of the ones that he had been imprisoning and killing, this Jesus that he thought was a fraud, he thought was a blaspheming charlatan, he's now finding that Lord to be real and all-powerful. It's a scary thing to be in the hands of God. But notice too that Saul, or that Jesus asked Saul why he is persecuting me. So add that to the list of, of odd things that must be going on in Saul's mind right now. Now, did we see Saul persecuting Jesus? Ever? No, there, there's no evidence in Scripture that, that Saul and Jesus ever actually met until this moment. No, no evidence that that ever happened. So this should actually be an enormous encouragement to us who are believers in Christ. When we experience persecution for our faith, for being a believer in Christ, when we're attacked for our faith, then we can be assured that God views it as an attack on himself. I, many of you know, I, I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma. So just imagine for a moment that the country of France decides to attack Ada, Oklahoma. Now, some of you might be thinking, it's just France, you know, re- really what could they do against Ada? But a mighty country like France, there's no way that Ada could stand up against them. But an attack against Eight Oklahoma is an attack against all of the United States of America. So in the same way, an attack against you, believer, is an attack against the God of this universe. He's aware and he will comfort you and he will respond in the way that is good and just and best. So Saul is blinded and just pause for a moment and consider the great irony here of this situation. The one who was seeking to destroy those who followed the way now could no longer find his own way. He had to rely on the temple guards, the enforcers who were with him to go collect the Christians. He had to rely on them to lead him around by the hand. Instead of finding Christians by force and making them helpless, Jesus had found him and made him utterly helpless. Instead of being in charge, leading people around, Saul finds out who is really in charge so no matter what your conversion story if you're a believer in christ we all have a story of how christ came into our lives but no matter what yours is at its root is a humbling we're shown to not be in charge of our lives king jesus is in charge and here in this story jesus humbled an arrogant and violent man Now, you may not be violent, your sins may lie in other areas, but no mistake, when Christ came into your life, he humbled your arrogance too. And praise God that he is in charge, that he is mighty to save, and praise God that his salvation is mightier than my sin, than your sin. And friend, if you're not a follower of Christ, then you're not too far gone. If Saul wasn't too far gone, then no one is too far gone. But we all have to humble ourselves and recognize that God is really the one who is in charge. And hopefully that's one of the hidden blessings of this coronavirus pandemic that we've all experienced that we're not in charge. Let's move on to the next character in our narrative, remembering all the while that the main character here, of course, is God, who is ensuring that the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed. But let's uh, for now meet Ananias. We read in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. So Ananias, from what we can understand of him, was, was an ordinary guy, an ordinary Christian. Uh, every t- everyone at that time was new to the faith. Ananias was new to the faith. The faith was new itself. So there's nothing special about him, yet he was asked to do something extraordinary. So a few things to notice about him and about his situation that hopefully we can apply to our lives that will help us who are also just regular, ordinary Christians as well. First, notice that when, when I need to ask someone uh, to do something for me, my tendency is to uh, beat around the bush a little bit. I'll say, this is, this is the problem, this is what happens, and uh, this is uh, what would be wonderful if it happened. If somebody would do this, it would be, be wonderful. And then I'll say, oh, by the way, would you do it? I beat around the bush, I hem and haw. But look at what Jesus does. He tells Ananias to go. And then he tells him who he's going to meet and what he is to do. Friends, God is in charge. Saul found that out. Ananias experienced that. And we have to quit fighting it as well and understand that God is in charge. Secondly, in verses 13 and 14, Ananias believes that the Lord Jesus is sending him to persecution, to imprisonment and possibly even to his death. He, he knew who Saul was. Saul, again, was this larger-than-life character who had a great reputation, of, a bad reputation of killing Christians. Saul was big, but Jesus is bigger still. Look at the Lord's words in verses 15 and 16. He says, "'Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine "'to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings "'and the children of Israel.'" for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Those words of the risen Jesus are proven true in the rest of Acts and then as we see in much of the rest of the New Testament. Saul did proclaim the name of the Lord to the Gentiles. Saul did suffer for the name of Christ. Third, look at how Ananias and Saul interact. I want you to notice here that Saul doesn't speak. He doesn't say anything in this interaction. It's an indication that Saul passively receives healing. He passively receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. He passively receives this revelation of the Lord. And further note Ananias' first words to Saul. He He says, brother, he says, brother. He says, brother, can you imagine what that must feel like to Saul? Remember Saul's state. He's on his way to take hold of Christians, and he's laid hold of by God. He's on his way to show no mercy to Christians, and now he's being shown mercy by a Christian. This is the strong man turned weak, the arrogant who is now humbled. And the first word that he hears is gloriously and amazingly, brother. An enemy of the way becomes a brother, of the way what a joy what a comfort and how uplifting and encouraging and hope-filled that word must have felt to Saul friends when when Saul was met by Jesus on that Damascus road he he was given a new heart he was given a new a new uh, mission a new purpose and he was given a new family and when we meet Jesus for the first time we are given those same things and then finally, we see Saul's obedience. When we meet Jesus, we obey. Saul received all of those things. He received a new mission, new family. And what did he do? Well, he, he went public with his decision. It says that immediately Saul was baptized. He, he didn't wait around for years. He didn't rely or rest on his previous religious experiences or traditions. No, he followed Jesus as he made the choice to be baptized. Meeting Jesus means obeying Jesus. And one question that I've considered as I've read through this and prepared a lot for this is, is the question of, am I obeying Jesus in everything? And I'd ask you that same thing. Are you obeying Jesus? Are there areas in your life that you still say, mine? When King Jesus is in charge, our lives reflect A progressively active obedience to all of his commands and all of his desires. And Saul gives us a great example of that. We receive Jesus passively, but we actively obey. And as we learn more about him, we understand more and more how much we must obey. Saul was soon to learn how much he must suffer for the sake of the name of Christ. And What he later wrote is that he counted it all joy. So I would ask you, if, if there are still areas of your life that you struggle with, and, and if you're like me and like every other Christian, then the answer to that is yes, there are areas of your life that you still struggle with, then I would encourage you to talk to somebody about that. Let them uh, lovingly shine the light into your life so that you can see those areas of, of sin, those areas of, of a lack of obedience that you may not be seeing. Saul was called Brother. He had a new family. And as believers in Christ, we have a family. We need each other to grow in holiness. We need each other to to be able to experience all that God has for us in Christ. Let's keep reading along with more of the passage. We'll start at the, the last part of verse 19. And as we do, we move back to a focus on Saul. And we read, For some days... He, meaning Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket." So don't, don't miss this again, we've already mentioned this, but this is, this is um, really unbelievable. This is, this is as though the, the leader of the Islamic State or the Ayatollah of Iran suddenly became a Christ follower, and then began to preach and teach to those that he was in charge of. This is crazy that Saul would be proclaiming Christ. Verse 20 says, he is the son of God, the one that he used to be persecuting. But notice that Saul wasn't an isolated street preacher either. He wasn't converted just to be a lone ranger. Says verse 19, he was with the disciples in Damascus. He was with the church. He began his life in the church, and he continued his Christian life in the church. And that should be our story too. Our, our, our lives are ones that once we were saved by, by Christ, we were saved for good works. We were saved to practice the one another's, for instance, that Scripture mentions, to love one another, to encourage each other, to build each other up. We, we can't do that unless we're meeting together. And now I know, in particular, for those that are watching online, I know that many can't be here because they're vulnerable. But let me encourage you, at some point, that won't be the case. At some point, this pandemic will end, and we need to be gathered back together. So don't get too used to being there and watching online. Let's remember that someday, we're all going to be back together in the same room. So see also that Saul was welcomed in by the church in Damascus. So imagine in the fear that that early church had as they heard about Saul and heard his story that he was coming into their church. Uh, surely some in that church were part of the group in Jerusalem, and some in that church uh, perhaps had been dragged out of their homes by Saul himself, tortured and imprisoned. They knew who he was. They couldn't believe that it was actually Saul. But of course, like he does so many times, God chose the foolish to shame the wise. And the church at Damascus took Saul in. Friends, Jesus is the friend of sinners. And we too, as his church, are called to be welcoming and loving of every believer, no matter what their story is or was. Saul was truly a believer. He was baptized in obedience. He began sharing his faith, even though it meant risking his life to do so. The one who once caused havoc in the church is now causing havoc in other places of worship. Now, we may not walk into a synagogue to share our faith, but for sure we walk into other places of worship. Uh, Someday soon, we're going to be walking back into sports stadiums. We're going to be walking into uh, people's homes, into sports bars, into Uh, our workplace, those two are places of worship. And we may not risk our lives to share our faith, but we do risk our reputations. And sometimes we risk our relationships. But that's what a true believer in Christ does. In this passage in Acts 9, this sets the pattern for what Saul would experience the rest of his life. He enters into a city, he boldly begins proclaiming the gospel. He's persecuted, his life is threatened, and then he escapes to enter into another city to repeat that process over and over again. And friends, when we proclaim Christ, when we live our lives for him, we will face opposition. That you may not be lowered out of your apartment complex in a basket. But be encouraged, when we, are, uh, when we face trials of various kinds, when we're opposed, be encouraged that our sovereign God has a plan. He had a plan for Saul's life, because Jesus was in charge, because it was his plan for Saul to survive that encounter and then to continue to preach and proclaim the gospel all over the Mediterranean. Because that is the case, then no scheme of man, no opposition of any kind could keep that from happening. So be encouraged that in the midst of your trials, that God is in charge. He doesn't allow anything to happen to us, good or bad, that isn't part of his holy, sovereign, and good plan. So we won't spend time reading uh, the last section of our passage, verses 26 through 31. Uh, Please uh, do that at some, some later day. but in it, let me just summarize. In it, we hear how another disciple, Barnabas, just again a regular, ordinary Christian, Barnabas, risked his reputation as he advocated for Saul to be accepted into the early church. Now, that should be an encouragement to us as we disciple others. It involves risk, it involves effort, it involves work, but it is worth it, and it is God glorifying for us to do that. So again, here, Saul preaches boldly. There's a murderous plot against him in verses 26 through 31. He narrowly escapes. This time he's sent, uh, goes back to his hometown of Tarsus. And Saul becomes the greatest missionary who ever lived, one of the boldest preachers who ever lived. And we would expect, would we not, we would expect that the rest of Acts would be about Saul. But really, we don't hear from Saul again until Acts chapter 11, only briefly, and then more so began in chapter 13, and why is that? Well, it's because Saul is not really the main character here. Instead, the gospel is on display as God continues to grow His church. We started with verse 31, and let me read that again. So, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The good news of Jesus, who has come to save the lost, continues to spread, and the church grows. There is peace within the church, even though there is persecution, even though there is turmoil outside of it. And oh, that that would be sad about us. Peace within our church, even if there is turmoil, or even when there is turmoil outside of it. And the church multiplying and growing. And if there is hope for Saul, If there is hope for Saul, a former persecutor of the church, then there is certainly hope for the atheist, for the sexually immoral, for the addicted, for the abuser, and even for the racist. God can reach anyone. And if there is peace in a church that includes Saul, if that church had peace, a former persecutor of the church, then that's a great reminder for us and for any church, particularly for us with people of different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different politics, different opinions on masks, all sorts of things that might be a divider amongst us, but yet there's peace and there can be. What an amazing testimony of God's grace in saving Saul. And and make no mistake that it is grace Saul was the unlikeliest of candidates to become a believer, and and the beauty of this is that he knew it. Uh, Later in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. And of course, we see evidences of his story all over The the New Testament, all over his writings, the, the acknowledgement that we're helpless rebels, that we're enemies of God, that we're dead in our sin, that we can't reach out to God on our own, but God in his grace for us, by his grace. So think about somebody, if you're a believer, think about somebody that you know that you think is too far gone you can never imagine them becoming a Christian. Or if you're not a believer, maybe you're thinking of of yourself in that way. Just look at Saul. That person that you're thinking of, or you, you're exactly the right person to receive God's grace because no one is beyond God's reach. But you must have a life-changing encounter with Jesus, just like big, bad, tough Saul. We all must recognize that Jesus is in charge and only he can save. Saul's story is an encouragement to the non-believer today, an encouragement for the non-believer to repent and to believe. And it's an encouragement for the believer. What, What an amazing, gracious, kind, loving, and powerful God we serve. And praise God that the power of the risen Jesus continues to be proclaimed as the message of the gospel brings peace wherever it's heard. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of what you have done in saving Saul. But even as we make it personal for those that are believers, we're in awe of what you have done for us. We all are sinners that don't deserve the grace that you have given to us. We don't deserve the life that you have given to us. So Father, we praise you for that. And God, as we look to people that don't know you, help us to keep Saul in mind and be reminded of the power of the risen Jesus, the power of the gospel, that you can save anyone. So Father, I pray that we would be encouraged by that, that we would go out into the world and, and speak with the people that we Uh, know that don't know you, uh, and that we would all the more praise you and give you glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.